0: Marcus and Narcissa Whitman were Christian missionaries who left their home in upstate New York and traveled with another missionary couple, Henry and Eliza Spaulding, to what was then called Oregon Country in 1836. Their mission, to Christianize Indians. In fact, Oregon wasn't even a territory yet. The United States government didn't have any programs in Oregon Country, which at the time consisted of the present-day states of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and parts of Wyoming and Montana. The Whitmans and the Spaldings were among the very first Americans of European descent to travel across North America by land to the western part of Oregon country. Lewis and Clark had only just done it 30 years earlier, and there had been fur traders and trappers and others of various nationalities in the area for a few years, but the Whitmans and the Spaldings were the first to settle in Cayuse and Nez Perce Indian territory near today's fashionable wine destination, Walla Walla, Washington. Eleven years after they arrived, a group of Cayuse ambushed and killed the Whitmans and eleven other people in what became a pivotal event in Washington State and Pacific Northwest history called the Whitman Massacre. I'm Eric Ebel, your fearless field guide to Washington State history, heritage, and culture, and the story you might think you know about the Whitman Massacre may very well be appended or upended, or both by the time this episode is finished. This, my friends, is Washington, our home. The story of Marcus and Narcissa Whitman has been told and retold so many times in classrooms throughout American history that it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction, But a new book coming out this month from Seattle's own Sasquatch Books aims to do just that. It's called Unsettled Ground, The Whitman Massacre and Its Shifting Legacy in the American West, authored by Cassandra Tate, a Seattle-based writer and editor. She earned her PhD in American History at the University of Washington in 1995, and has contributed more than 200 articles to one of our favorite websites, historylink.org, the online encyclopedia of Washington State history. Before we get into the gory details of this horrific tragedy, be sure to hit subscribe to be alerted when new episodes of the podcast come out. We aim for releases on the first Monday of every month. Of course, there'll be some tricky trivia questions midway through this episode, and answers at the end so you can find out how you did. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Tate soon as we take a look at the real story of the Whitman Massacre. For those of you who have no idea what the Whitman Massacre is, or how its effects have rippled across time to lap against the shores of modern day discourse, I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version, or for you millennials out there, the Wikipedia version. Prior to 1803, the United States didn't even stretch halfway across North America. Thomas Jefferson then purchased the Louisiana Territory from France, essentially expanding America two-thirds of the way west toward the Pacific. He then sent Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery to go check out the new purchase, which they did and came back with fantastic tales of strange creatures, harrowing landscapes, and tribal indigenous peoples. A few years later, a wave of religious revivalism called the Second Great Awakening swept across the East Coast, including a particular hotspot in western and central New York State called the Burned Over District. It was so named because of the highly publicized revivals that crisscrossed the region to such a great extent that spiritual fervor seemed to set the area on fire. Caught up in this fervor were a young Marcus Whitman and Narcissa Prentice. Marcus dreamed of becoming a minister, but did not have the money for such schooling. He studied medicine instead for two years with an experienced physician, and received his medical degree from the Fairfield Medical College in New York. He practiced medicine for a few years in Canada, but was interested in going west. In 1835, he traveled with the missionary Samuel Parker, who eventually introduced him to Narcissa, to present-day northwestern Montana and northern Idaho to minister to bands of the Flathead and Nez Perce nations. During this journey, he treated several fur trappers during an outbreak of cholera. At the end of their stay, he promised the Nez Perce that he would return with other missionaries and teachers to live with them. Narcissa was a primary school teacher in Prattsburg, New York, but like many young women of the era, she became caught up in the Second Great Awakening as well. She decided that her true calling was to become a missionary, but she wasn't allowed to do so as a single woman. After applying for missionary service, she met and married Dr. Marcus Whitman on February 18, 1836. The two were sponsored by the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, and along with fellow missionaries Henry and Eliza Spaulding, became some of the first Americans to travel overland on what would become the Oregon Trail to what would become the Pacific Northwestern United States. We'll learn more in 30 seconds, right after this quick break.
1: Face coverings help stop the spread of COVID-19, whether we have it or not. So let's talk about face coverings, or masks. A good mask covers your nose and mouth, stays on your face, and doesn't have holes or tears. Have enough masks on hand to get you and your family through the week. Just remember to wear a clean mask or cloth face covering every day. And throw away disposable masks after every use. Remember, masks are required for most people. Mask up to open up, Washington. Visit coronavirus.wa.gov masks. This message brought to you by the state of Washington.
0: Welcome back, and thanks for listening. The Spaldings decided to establish their mission on Nez Perce land at a place called Lapway, near present-day Lewiston, Idaho. The Whitmans headed a bit farther west and established their mission at a place called Wailitpoo, near present-day Walla Walla, Washington. Why didn't the two couples band together to establish a joint mission where there would be safety in numbers, you might ask? Well, after eight months of overland travel, spending every single day and night with the same people and their same annoying personality quirks and their same uncomfortable demeanors, The two couples were right sick of each other. If they hadn't separated upon arrival, I'd say there's a chance they may have eventually massacred each other. When the Spaldings built their mission for the Nez Perce, they also established the first European-American home in what is today the state of Idaho. They were also responsible for bringing the first printing press into the territory, and were generally successful in their interactions with the Nez Perce, baptizing several of their leaders and teaching tribal members. Henry developed an appropriate written script for the Nez Perce language and translated parts of the Bible, including the entire book of Matthew, for the use of his congregation. Eliza Spaulding was very well-liked by the Nez Perce peoples, whose women often followed her around her home, wanting to see how she cooked and cleaned and dressed and cared for her children. She was quickly liked by them and respected for her courage and for her attempts to act as a buffer between the Nez Perce and Henry, who was not always well-liked. He was inflexible on gambling, liquor, and polygamy, and even went as far as whipping some Nez Perce, or having them whip each other. Henry seemed to be the opposite of Eliza in his relationship with the Nez Perce. Where she sought to understand them, he sought for them to understand him. The Whitman settlement was in the territory of both the Cayuse and Nez Perce tribes. Marcus farmed and provided medical care, while Narcissa set up a school for the Indian children. However, their relationships with the natives soon soured, to the point where both Marcus and Narcissa eventually abandoned their goal of trying to convert them to Christianity, and instead focused on assisting overland travelers on their way to the Willamette Valley at the end of the Oregon Trail. Marcus continued to treat patients, both American and Indian, But the influx of settlers in the territory brought new infectious diseases to the Indian tribes, including a severe epidemic of measles in 1847. The lack of immunity to Eurasian diseases resulted in high death rates for the indigenous peoples, with children especially dying in large numbers. The Whitmans cared for both Cayuse and settlers, but half of the Cayuse died and nearly all of the Cayuse children died, Seeing that more settlers had survived, the Cayuse began to suspect that the Whitmans were to blame for the devastating deaths among their people. Now, in the Cayuse tradition, the medicine man was personally responsible for the patient's recovery. If the patient did not recover, it was the medicine man's fault, and the medicine man could be punished or even killed as a result. The Cayuse despair at the deaths, especially of their children, among a number of other misunderstandings and hurt feelings, culminated with a number of Cayuse ambushing the settlers at the mission and killing both Marcus and Narcissa, as well as 11 other people living there on November 29, 1847. Cayuse warriors then destroyed many of the buildings at Wailitpu and held another 45 or so women and children captive for a month before releasing them after negotiations. Some of the Cayuse men took captive women to be their wives, and there is at least one account of rape occurring at the hands of these men. This event became known to Americans as the Whitman Massacre, and it triggered the larger conflict that became known to non-Indians as the Cayuse War. It's important to note at this point that the reasons behind the killings and the conflict are different, depending on which perspective you take. From the standpoint of the Americans, these poor missionaries were simply trying to save the souls of the heathens, and for their efforts, they were slaughtered. From the Cayuse standpoint, the Americans had broken a number of promises and brought with them diseases that literally wiped out nearly their entire population. The only way to put an end to the unimaginable suffering they were experiencing was to wipe out the Americans first. The old expression, to the victor go the spoils, is generally accepted as accurate based on who gets to write the corresponding history of any conflict. The growing number of American settlers, with their advanced technology, tipped the population balance in their favor. The hunt for the Indians who participated in the massacre resulted in the eventual hanging of five Indian perpetrators, which I put in quotes because there's conflicting evidence that those five men were even the same ones who participated in the killings. But somebody had to hang for it, and these men paid the price. Retellings of the harrowing events became more and more grandiose as the years passed. Even eyewitnesses were known to exaggerate their stories for shock value. In time, even the reasons behind key events were clouded by myth and convenience, such as the notion that Marcus Whitman saved Oregon by traveling to the nation's capital and single-handedly convincing lawmakers to establish the Oregon Territory, something that was almost entirely fabricated. After their deaths, the Whitmans became martyrs to the American cause of Manifest Destiny, and their legends only grew in size as well as historical inaccuracy. Then, in the 1970s, Americans began re-examining the stories about Indians, and realizing that many of the events once considered facts were more likely a result of fanciful fiction that had gone unquestioned. Because of the conflicting perspectives, what became known as a massacre was eventually referred to as a tragedy. What was once called a war evolved into a conflict, and some of the battles with Indians some of whom were women and children, may have really been closer to one-sided revenge killings. Our ever-changing understanding of past events has brought some balance back to the Whitman story, but has the pendulum swung far enough? And is it in danger of swinging too far in the opposite direction, unfairly vilifying all the Americans— These are some of the significant questions that Dr. Cassandra Tate's book, Unsettled Ground, the Whitman Massacre and its shifting legacy in the American West, tries to address. And we'll hear from Dr. Tate directly, right after today's trivia questions. You know the drill, loyal listeners. I'll give you five multiple-choice questions relating to today's topic, and you remember your answers until the end of the podcast, when all will be revealed. Are you ready? Question one. Who traveled west with the Whitmans to establish their own mission at Lapwai in present-day Idaho? Was it A. William Gray and Samuel Parker? B. Milton Sublette and Thomas Fitzpatrick? C. Jeff Thompson and Fairfield Pratt, or D. Henry and Eliza Spaulding. Question two. What year did Marcus and Narcissa get married? Was it A. 1929, B. 1836, C. 1863, or D. 1689? Question three, what was the nickname of the Western New York area where religious revivalism was rampant in the early 19th century? Was it A, the Burnout District, B, the Hotbed District, C, the Overdone District, or D, the Burned Over District? Question four, what epidemic nearly wiped out the Cayuse people during the tenure of Marcus and Narcissa Whitman? Your answers are A, Measles, B, Cholera, C, smallpox, and D, dysentery. And question five, not a multiple choice, more of a take your best guess question. Name three things in Washington named after Marcus Whitman. And I'll have your answers after the interview with Dr. Tate, after this short break.
1: We all miss the life we had before COVID-19. All the barbecues, birthday parties, anniversaries. But for now, the party can wait. The health of your family and friends is much more important. If you have COVID-19 and you get near others, everyone you come in contact with is at risk to get very, very sick. It's okay to say no to that gathering, because saying no today means we'll all be healthier tomorrow. For more information, visit yakimatogether.org. This message brought to you by the state of Washington.
0: Joining me now is Dr. Cassandra Tate, a former journalist of 25 years before earning her PhD in history at the University of Washington. She's authored numerous essays available at one of our favorite online resources, historylink.org, and her latest work is a book coming out this month called Unsettled Ground, The Whitman Massacre, and Its Shifting Legacy in the American West. Dr. Tate, thank you so much for taking some time with me today.
2: It's my pleasure, Eric.
0: So I wanted to start by asking you, what compelled you to write a book about this topic that seems so integral to Pacific Northwest history?
2: I was introduced to one version of this story when I was in elementary school in Seattle in the late 1950s. And it made a very vivid and durable impression on me as I remembered it. Narcissa Whitman was a beautiful, saintly woman. Uh, Her husband, Marcus Whitman, was a strong, heroic man. And they were both kind and noble people who were brutally murdered by the mean, ungrateful Indians that they had tried to help. Back, you know, in elementary school in Seattle in the late 1950s, I heard a version of that story. It was part of a unit on the brave pioneers who came west to make homes and towns in a land that was virtually empty, we were told, empty except for the occasional wild Indians who attacked the wagon trains of the brave pioneers. We girls made sunbonnets and aprons, and the boys made uh, imitation coonskin caps and plywood rifles, and I thought it was all great fun, so flash forward to the 1970s, around the time that books such as Custer Died for Your Sins and Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee and popular films such as Soldier Blue and Little Big Man were coming out and shifting the narrative toward a more sympathetic view of the Indigenous people. I was living and working as a journalist in Lewiston, Idaho, and I lived not far from the Spaulding mission on Nez Perce land at Lapway. That's the mission established by Henry and Eliza Spaulding, the couple who came west with the Whitman. I just became interested in these missionaries, their motives and objectives, uh, their relationship with the uh, indigenous people who may have had come west to, quote, save, unquote. And also in the ways in which the stories told about them had changed over time. I just became interested in the contrast between the story that I remembered as a schoolgirl and stories that were being told in the 70s and 80s. And I just got drawn deeper and deeper into the story. And into the Cayuse, I became interested in who they were and what they had expected of the missionaries. They had invited the missionaries to come and settle on their land, and I was interested in why did they do that? What did they expect to gain from that relationship?
0: I would like to mention that as a student who grew up in Washington State's public school system in the late 1970s and early 1980s, that narrative that you had mentioned was still being taught even that late in the end of the last century.
2: Well, I, uh, I can't speak to how things are today, but I, I hope there's been some evolution.
0: <laughs> I think there's been a great deal of progress made since then, for sure. And a lot of it has to do with folks like yourself who are looking for deeper answers, I think, in the stories that we all grew up hearing. And like you said, the vision of Narcissa as this angelic individual who was adored by men and pursued and had a pioneer spirit. Uh, And then, of course, Marcus, you know, very similarly with his physique being greatly exaggerated and his, his style and his mannerisms. I mean, all of this does not appear to be historically factually accurate, does it?
2: Well, uh, no, Um, I mean, history is, as you know, Eric, it's a moving target and it's, we look at the past through the lens of our own time. In the 1950s, the United States was embroiled in a, a cold war with the, quote, godless communists in the Soviet Union. And so the memorialization and celebration of Christian heroes was the antithesis of the godless communists. The simplistic stories told about the missionaries supported that narrative.
0: You know, America right now is currently undergoing a reexamination period where narratives of the past such as this are being upended and looked at through a newly enlightened lens, so to speak. How important do you think it is that we continue to do that in order to right past wrongs?
2: I think that's very important to question the inherited wisdom of the past. I mean, I wouldn't advocate a wholesale jettison of everything that has been written about the past. I mean, what we were taught that's a simplifying of the past. Now we're getting older, and we recognize that these people are complex human beings, right. and the events of the past are complex. So, the jettisoning the whole thing is also a way of, of simplifying it, and that's as wrong as the simplification that went on in the past.
0: People are complex. I mean, when I give presentations, I'm frequently trying to present events in proper context so that people in the audience understand exactly what the mindset of a person in that period of time would have been like. So I think keeping context when remembering these events is important, but at the same time, not sacrificing historical accuracy is equally, if not more important, especially because. History is messy. It's never crystal clear.
2: Absolutely. And I hope that if anything else in my book, I've tried to be as respectful and sensitive to the facts as I can best determine what they were. And, you know, that means looking at it from a lot of different angles. I mean, I had the impression that Narcissa Whitman had her throat slashed. And there was a writer recently who said, you know, she was shot a dozen times and rolled into the mud and her bare back whipped by Indians. You know, to dig through different tales and try to, as accurately as possible, find out what exactly happened and where it's not known to acknowledge that and maybe embrace the complexity and the conflict, but absolutely to try to get the facts.
0: So let's get back to your book real quick. It is exhaustively researched. I mean, there are no less than 35 pages dedicated to citations at the end of your book. Do you think that your book, Unsettled Ground, should be the new definitive work on this topic?
2: Oh, I don't think I'd be that presumptive. I I tried to write a balanced book with a more nuanced perspective than has been found in books on this topic, from the overly romantic accounts to the more overtly negative accounts in more recent books. I hope that it informs and maybe enlightens and maybe stimulates further discussion.
0: Like anything in a historical retelling, it should add to the narrative rather than replace it. Exactly. You mentioned that this story has been significantly romanticized over the decades. From a devil's advocate perspective, what do you say to those who want to willingly perpetuate the myths and legends surrounding the massacre?
2: I'd say let's pay more attention to the facts and try to uh, shed the myth. Over time... Narcissa just became more blonde and more beautiful with every retelling, and Marcus became more heroic. And so the portrait that emerged of these two people is so divorced from the real flesh and blood people that it's not that difficult to drill down to the real human beings by looking at their copious letters. Narcissa was a better writer, Marcus was uh, a less graceful and less prolific writer, but still they both left enough and they were both written about enough by people who knew them that we can see the flesh and blood complex people that that they really were and not the mythological creatures that they became. In the course of my research about these people, my own perspective changed quite a bit. I I find much to admire about them and their courage, their willingness to face the unknown, their stamina, just the fact that they were tough people. Narcissa was in the late stages of pregnancy during the most strenuous part of that journey to Oregon. They set out to Christianize Indians, but they very quickly turned their attention to promoting the colonization of Oregon country, and they became sort of a way station on the nascent Oregon Trail. So she's often cooking three meals a day for a dozen or more people at that mission. And for the first five years, she did it all over an open fire. She didn't get a stove until she'd been there for like five years. You cannot read her letters and not feel her grief after her toddler daughter drowned in that stream behind the mission house, just a few years after they arrived in in Oregon country. Marcus, just the sheer physical labor involved in building your house and making furniture and tilling unbroken ground so you can raise the kind of food you want to eat, he spent many days just bent with fatigue from the sheer physical labor involved in that, in establishing and expanding his mission and his farm. In 1838, the whitman Spaulding mission was reinforced by four other couples, missionary couples sent out by the organization that sponsored the Whitman's and the Spauldings, the Boston-based American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. These couples ended up, none of them got along, they're all very quarrelsome, strong-minded, zealous people, and uh, they ended up establishing four different missions, widely separated, and Whitman spent much of his time traveling to these distant outposts, tending the sick and so on, leaving Narcissa alone and lonely back at the Whitman mission. So I can sympathize with that and, and, like I said, find admirable qualities. I, in researching this book, I've visited their hometowns in upstate New York and sort of retraced their journey out to Oregon country and, you know, would settle in at a motel at the end of the day and have a, a hot shower and just reflect on the fact that Narcissa never had a hot shower. She... It would bathe in, in outdoors in the in the river for much of the year. Anyway, I just have some degree of sympathy and, and admiration for them. At the same time, you know, they were just so woefully unprepared for the work that they set out to do. They their understanding of what the plateau people wanted or needed was based on hearsay and imagination. The primary qualification for appointment by the American board was piety. They were not given any cross-cultural training. The American board did not expect its missionaries to show respect for or solidarity with the people they were supposed to live with. And in their surviving letters, neither of the Whitmans ever expressed any admiration or appreciation or empathy for the people that they were trying to, quote, save, unquote. They didn't take advantage of any of the expertise that the Indians had to offer after having lived in that environment for thousands of years. Uh, they Their lives might have been a lot easier if they had, if they had incorporated foods like camas into their diet, nutritious tubers, and taken advantage of Native expertise with, using the sun to preserve foods. They did buy and eat Indian horses as a mainstay of their diet until they could raise enough cattle of their own to slaughter their own cattle. But the Indians themselves never ate their horses.
0: I think I would have preferred camas root over horse meat in those days anyway. (laughs) Right.
2: You know, they're products of their time and their culture, and they came West with a deep sense of cultural arrogance, that theirs was the only way to think and live, and all other systems, Catholicism, you know, they were as suspicious of Catholics as they were of of the heathen, and they even had their doubts about the Methodists, uh, were deeply wrong. They just found nothing at all to admire about the way the Cayuse lived,
0: What, if any, fascinating new detail did you uncover in your research?
2: I think maybe it was the contrast between Narcissa and Eliza. And I think that Eliza didn't leave much of a written record. But fur traders that she encountered along the way left their impressions of her. They're such different women and Eliza, in contrast, is always descri- invariably described as the thin, scrawny, dark one. But she was by far the most successful missionary of all the groups sent out by the American board. She learned the language spoken by the Nez Perce. She became fluent in that. She established relationships with the women. She spent time with them. She let her children play with their Nez Perce counterparts. And by all accounts, uh, she was respected and even loved by the people with whom she lived in contrast to Narcissa, who cut herself off from the Cayuse people, literally with, you know, shutters on the windows and fences around the house and emotionally. So I think it's not a single factoid as much as dismantling the romantic notion of Narcissa as a beautiful, saintly person.
0: The book is called Unsettled Ground, The Whitman Massacre and Its Shifting Legacy in the American West. And we've been speaking with its author, Dr. Cassandra Tate.
2: Thank you. It's been a lot of fun.
0: And quickly, where can somebody pick up a copy of this book when it's released in late November?
2: You can get a copy at any local bookstore. Uh, It's available online from uh, Amazon and Target and uh, every place where books are sold.
0: Very good. And thank you so much for speaking with me today. The book is a fascinating read, definitely worthwhile for anyone who is a student or a fan of Washington State history. Dr. Tate, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Eric. Again, it's been a pleasure.
0: Time to answer those Whitman trivia questions. Question one was who traveled west with the Whitmans to establish their own mission at Lapway in present-day Idaho? Your choices were William Gray and Samuel Parker. No, those were two other missionaries ancillary to the Whitman story. Milton Sublette and Thomas Fitzpatrick? No, those were two mountain men who helped guide the Whitmans overland to Oregon country. Jeff Thompson and Fairfield Pratt. No, that's a portmanteau of Thomas Jefferson, Prattsburg, New York, and Fairfield Medical College. The answer is, of course, D, Henry and Eliza Spaulding. Question two was, what year did Marcus and Narcissa get married? A and D were 1929 and 1689, respectively, both being obviously ridiculous. C was 1863, which would have been 16 years after their deaths, a miracle, even by today's harsh standards for miracles. That leaves B, 1836, which means they were married for 11 years before their untimely deaths. Question three was, what was the nickname of the western New York area where religious revivalism was rampant in the 19th century? Your answers were the Burnout District, the Hotbed District, the Overdone District, and the Burned Over District, the last of which is correct, the Burned Over District. Question four was, what epidemic nearly wiped out the Cayuse people during the tenure of Marcus and Narcissa Whitman? Your choices were A. Measles, B. Cholera, C. Smallpox, and D. Dysentery. Dysentery and cholera killed many travelers on the Oregon Trail and in the Oregon Trail video game, come to think of it. And smallpox did wipe out thousands of Indians across the country. But it was measles that beleaguered the Cayuse to the point of resorting to mass murder in a misguided attempt to stop it. And question five, name three things in Washington named after Marcus Whitman. Whitman is commemorated by Whitman College in Walla Walla, the Walla Walla Whitman National Forest, Mount Rainier's Whitman Glacier, and numerous schools, including Marcus Whitman Middle School in Port Orchard, Marcus Whitman Junior High School in Seattle, and Marcus Whitman Central School in Rushville, New York, his hometown. In 1853, the state of Washington dedicated a statue of him at National Statuary Hall in the United States Capitol. Identical statues stand both in Walla Walla and at the state capitol in Olympia. The Washington State Legislature declared the fourth day of September as Marcus Whitman Day. A bronze tablet in Wheeler, New York, commemorates his 1828-35 practice as a medical doctor in that town. In 1977, he was inducted into the Steuben County, New York Hall of Fame. Walla Walla has a Marcus Whitman Hotel and Conference Center. And, while the name is not used much now, the road from Pen Yan, New York, to Rushville, New York, was formerly called the Marcus Whitman Highway. Some of the best evidence of how the Whitman legend evolved over time can be seen in pictures of Marcus and Narcissa themselves. Search Google for pictures of the martyred missionaries and you'll pull up three distinct sets of images. The first are illustrations published in an 1895 book by Chicago newspaperman Oliver Nixon called How Marcus Whitman Saved Oregon. The picture captioned, Dr. Marcus Whitman at the time of his marriage, featured a ministerial looking man with a neatly parted haircut, wearing the collar favored by a Presbyterian clergyman in the late 19th century. Whitman, of course, was not an ordained minister. Although he aspired to the ministry, he couldn't afford the time or education necessary to attain that. And this is a little disturbing fact. It was actually a lot easier to become a medical doctor than it was a preacher at that time in history. The picture identified in Nixon's book as Mrs. Narcissa Prentice Whitman, Prentice being her maiden name, is of a rather stern-looking woman with a thin, downturned mouth and narrow, straight eyebrows. She's wearing a top, buttoned right up to her throat, and her hair is neatly parted and pressed. These are very nice-looking representations of American citizens in the mid-19th century, but they are not, as it was later learned, actually images of Marcus and Narcissa. In subsequent editions of the book, Nixon admitted that the photograph of Marcus Whitman was not Marcus Whitman the missionary. But instead, Reverend Marcus Whitman Montgomery, a Chicago clergyman totally unrelated to the pioneer, other than being named after him. The image was retouched to remove the clerical collar and tidy up the sideburns a bit, and the caption was changed to read quote, No picture of Dr. Whitman is in existence. The above portrait is made from the basis of a photograph of Reverend Marcus Whitman Montgomery who resembled Dr. Whitman very closely. Changes have been made under the supervision of the family, who now pronounce this a very correct likeness." As for Narcissa, Nixon replaced the original photo with a drawing of a much softer-looking woman with large, expressive eyes. She's gazing directly at the viewer, with her mouth slightly upturned at the corners, and her parted hair isn't pulled back quite as tight. The caption beneath this entirely new picture reads, quote, No authentic picture of Mrs. Whitman is in existence. This portrait of her has been drawn under the supervision of a gentleman familiar with her appearance, and with suggestions from members of her family. It is considered a good likeness of her." A third set of images comes from sketches made by Paul Kane, a Canadian artist who visited the Whitman Mission in July 1847, just four months before the attack. The sketch that ended up coming to represent Narcissa shows a woman seated outdoors without a sunbonnet, freely flowing curled locks, and a scoop-necked dress with her sleeves pushed up to the elbows. Kane's sketch that came to represent Marcus Whitman depicted a man wearing a fringed buckskin jacket and a Frontier-style hat. He may have even been sporting some Van Dyke-style facial hair. Dr. Tate notes how interesting it is that these images were chosen to represent the Whitmans. Paul Kane spent years sketching the indigenous peoples of Western North America, and his portfolio of sketches at the Royal Ontario Museum includes just 12 images of obviously Caucasian men and about five of Caucasian women. Narcissa, would never have likely appeared in a low-necked dress. In fact, her own adopted daughter described her as someone who dressed, quote, severely. Also, she was rarely caught without a sunbonnet outside, and was not known to expose her arms in public. Her husband, by comparison, was also known to dress more formally, and was loath to wear the garb of the, quote-unquote, heathens that he had come west to save. After his death, his possessions were inventoried, and nary a buckskin jacket was found. What was found was described by fellow missionary Henry Spaulding as a, quote, super-fine jacket, silk vest, and other clothing items worth more than 10000 in today's dollars. Of Paul Kane's Caucasian sketches, one woman is wearing a sunbonnet, and her face appears very weathered and homely. One man in Kane's sketches is fully bearded, balding, and looking, as Tate describes, quite unheroic. Could these have been the real depictions of Marcus and Narcissa Whitman? If so, how interesting is it that the trajectory of the Whitman mythology could have changed if the picture of the haggard woman and unshaven man had been selected as authentic instead of the more pleasing images that better fit the narrative? Perhaps we'd be having a very different discussion today. Or perhaps, there wouldn't be a need for a discussion about this tragedy at all. That, my friends, is the story of the Whitman tragedy, formerly known as a massacre. And hopefully you've learned how important it is to put things into context when tempted to interpret historical events through the lens of today's standards try to remember that 150 years from now, there's a very good chance that historians might consider us unenlightened or even myopic. I have to say, after reading Dr. Tate's book, my own opinion on the Whitman statue in Olympia has changed. Prior to this, I was adamantly opposed to legislative calls to remove the statue. But upon reflection, I think what I was and M, really opposed to, is the diminishing of what the statue is supposed to represent. The fictionalized caricature of a muscly Marcus Whitman is not Marcus Whitman the man. That's Marcus Whitman the legend, a legend that does not, and never, existed. For that reason, it's time to consider removing the statue but that does not supplant the need to recognize the fortitude, endurance, and determination of those first American settlers. Those, too, are admirable qualities, without which we would not have the great state that we all know and love today. History has room for multiple stories, and it's imperative that we tell all of them, not just the ones we happen to like today, in order to get the whole picture. Please take a quick second to rate this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Blueberry, whatever podcast listening service you use. More ratings helps more people find the podcast and helps spread the word. A five-star rating would be much appreciated, and please share it with your friends. Be sure to subscribe for new episodes featuring stories from Washington State's history, heritage, and culture. And follow Washington Our Home on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There's lots of great video content on YouTube, and if you're looking for scenic pictures from around the state, look no further than the Pinterest boards. I sincerely hope you enjoyed this month's episode. And again, many, many thanks to Dr. Cassandra Tate and publicist Molly Woolbright at Sasquatch Books. You can reach me at eric at washingtonourhome.com. That's E-R-I-C-H at... Washingtonourhome.com to send feedback, ask questions, or just say hello. You know, the Marcus Whitman statue in the State Capitol Building and at Statuary Hall in Washington, D.C. is one of two figures in Washington state history memorialized in bronze. Next month, we're taking a look at the other one, Mother Joseph. Who was she? What did she do that was so critical in Washington? And why would anyone hold up and rob an elderly nun at gunpoint? It's not a very good way to get into heaven. We'll dive into Mother Joseph's story next month. Until then, I'm your fearless field guide, Eric Ebel, and I'll see you somewhere in Washington.